You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. You're listening to an Ono Media Podcast. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise and Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and as promised, I have the results of the Jennifer Crumley case. The jury is back with a guilty verdict. The mother of Ethan Crumley was convicted on all four counts of involuntary manslaughter on Tuesday afternoon. Now, I covered the Ethan Crumley case on December 11th when that teen was found guilty of first-degree murder for the four classmates that he slaughtered with a handgun that his parents purchased for him. Now, that episode, it's a pretty extensive deep dive if you want to go back and listen, but I will quickly tell you the details of that school shooting, and then we'll spend a lot of time on the trial of his mother, Jennifer. Now, when Ethan was a child, his parents moved around frequently before they landed in Oxford, Michigan. A neighbor would kind of watch after Ethan when he was a preteen and early in his teen years because his parents would leave him alone often. They kind of got involved in the bar scene in downtown Lake Orion, which left Ethan alone. That neighbor was so concerned, she filed a report with CPS. Then in October of 2021, the 15-year-old's life became even more complicated when his best friend moved away from the area and also his dog died. This thrusted Ethan into a deep depression. Prior to those events, Ethan had already been texting his mom telling her that demons and ghosts were inside their home. Ethan was also videoing himself torturing animals and he had allegedly placed a baby bird's head in a jar and taken it to the school. Now, despite these warning signs, Ethan's parents, on Black Friday, had purchased a 9mm handgun and an 
ammunition and gifted the gun to Ethan. That following Tuesday in 2021, Ethan was displaying disturbing behavior at school when a teacher spotted Ethan searching for ammunition on his phone. She reported that search to administrators. School officials left a voicemail for Jennifer discussing the disturbing behavior. In response to the voicemail, Jennifer texted Ethan and wrote, LOL, I'm not mad at you. You have to learn to not get caught. Then later that day, a different teacher found a violent drawing on Ethan's desk. So it was on a math paper, and the drawing was of a semi-automatic handgun pointing at the words, the thoughts won't stop, help me. And then on another section of the paper was a drawing of a bullet with the following words above that bullet, blood everywhere. Then between the drawing of the gun and the bullet was a drawing of a person who it appears to have been shot twice in the head and that the person is bleeding. And then below that figure is a drawing of a laughing emoji. And then even further down the paper are the words, my life is useless. And then to the right of those words, there was the phrase, the world is dead. Obviously concerned, his teacher took a picture of the drawing and sent it to the administrators. Again, Jennifer was phoned with a request by administrators that she come to the school. When both of the Crumleys arrived at the school, they reviewed the drawing and they agreed that they would get Ethan some professional help within the next 48 hours. But they resisted the suggestion to take him home for the day. After his parents left the school, Ethan retrieved the 9mm that he had hidden on the school grounds earlier that morning. Surveillance footage shows Ethan walking from a school bathroom into a hallway where he begins shooting the gun. The hallway is loaded with students who are passing from one class period to another. As students begin running in terror, Ethan methodically shoots into classroom doors and down the hallway. Now I'm going to add my opinion here. The response by the school resource officer and law enforcement was swift and effective. Within two to three minutes of arriving on scene of the mass shooting, police had disarmed Ethan and saved the lives of possibly dozens of students. Ethan had been found with additional ammunition and he could have killed more than he did that day. Sadly, Ethan was successful in murdering four of his classmates. The three students who died immediately were 17-year-old Madison Baldwin, 16-year-old Tate Meyer, and 14-year-old Hannah St. Juliana. One day later, 17-year-old Justin Schilling died at the hospital from his injuries. Now, regrettably, we have school shootings in America, but this one has been handled differently. Other parents have faced lighter charges, like the mother of the six-year-old boy who shot his teacher in the hand in Virginia, Now, I told you that story on November 9th of last year when that teacher sued the school for failure to protect her and other students. The mother of that boy, well, she was found guilty of child neglect and also for felony charges involving the gun that the boy used in the attack. And then a father was charged in the Highland Park, Illinois shooting. And even though his son did the shooting, that dad had signed the application for the gun despite his son showing concerning behavior. Now that father served 60 days in jail for misdemeanor reckless conduct charges. But you guys, this one was different. Four people died and nearly a dozen others were injured. So the state filed manslaughter charges against both parents. James Crumley's trial is set to start for March 5th. 
He has pleaded not guilty like his wife Jennifer did, but their trials were severed when Jennifer repeatedly said James was the one to blame for Ethan's behavior on that November day. So Jennifer, she was tried separately, and here's how it went. The prosecution argued that Jennifer was responsible for the deaths along with Ethan because she was grossly negligent when she gifted the gun to her 15-year-old. They also said that she failed to get him the needed mental help despite all of the warning signs. The prosecution, for more than a week of the trial, had school employees and law enforcement officials testify to the aloofness with which Jennifer approached her parental responsibilities. Those school officials also testified that they had reached out to the parents multiple times with concerns about Ethan's actions. And of course, the defense countered that Jennifer was not the one responsible. They blamed James for not securing the firearm properly at home. And the defense also blamed the school, saying that the administrators had not informed her of all of Ethan's concerning behavior. And then in a strategy that just felt so sad to me because her son is spending the rest of his life in prison. Well, the defense blamed Ethan because he was the one who planned and carried out the attack. And they said Jennifer had nothing to do with it. Now, Jennifer took the stand in her defense and she told jurors that she didn't refuse to take her son home on that fateful day of the shooting. She said if Ethan had wanted to go home, she would have taken him. She told jurors that she was a good mother who took her son on vacations. She even explained photos of the family apple picking and hanging out on a houseboat. Jennifer said they played board games together and they swam together. And she even bragged about teaching her son to ski. Jennifer then testified that she didn't think her son needed mental health treatment. She admitted that the night before the shooting, that her and Ethan had argued about his grades. She also admitted that the drawing concerned her when she saw it in the meeting just hours before the shooting, but she said she was following the school's lead. She told jurors that the school wasn't concerned he was going to hurt other students, so she didn't think he would hurt other students. Now, this actually matches up with school officials' testimony. They had told jurors the same thing. They didn't think he would hurt others, they were more concerned about him hurting himself. Jennifer then went on to dismiss the text from her son, where he had told her there were ghosts and demons in the home. She said those texts were similar to other texts, where they joked with each other. So she just didn't take them that serious. In fact, she said that she believed he was texting those things simply because he was bored. Jennifer then addressed texts that she and her husband had shared where she wrote that she was worried Ethan would do something stupid. She said when she sent those texts to her husband, she was actually referring to Ethan potentially walking home from school the wrong way and getting lost and not returning home. She also testified that she couldn't have known that Ethan was struggling at such an intense level because in just the week prior, they had enjoyed the Thanksgiving holiday with family where they played games and they even went on a hunt to cut down a Christmas tree. She also addressed the text shared between her and Ethan shortly before the shooting. Okay, that's the one that said, LOL, I'm not mad. You have to learn to not get caught. That text, well, she said it was an ongoing joke in their home 
that she used to tell stories about the stuff she would get away with as a kid and that he needed to learn from her ways. She then pointed out that she was a concerned mother because on the day of the shooting, after she left the school, she had sent a text to Ethan saying, you can talk to us. She said she was trying to open the door for Ethan to feel comfortable in having tough conversations. She then talked about the moments directly following the shooting. She said she had received a call from James telling her that there was an active shooter at the high school. Now, James had raced home to check and see if the 9mm was still there. When he found it was gone and he told Jennifer that it was gone, Jennifer sent a text to Ethan saying, don't do it. She told the jury she thought he might have shot himself, not that he would have shot other people. Jennifer then went on to explain her behavior in the days following the shooting. Now, during those days, she had withdrawn thousands of dollars of cash and also fled to a hotel with James, she said, due to death threats the two were receiving via social media. She then said they drove to Detroit because a friend offered for them to stay there. She said she didn't turn herself in when she was made aware of the pending charges because she was scared to enter back into the public. Jennifer said when she looks back on that situation, that she wouldn't have done anything different. Okay, I feel like I need to remind you here. Her 15-year-old is in jail for killing four people, but she fled and she says she wouldn't have done anything different. Now, her attorney, after all of that, asked if she could change things, would she? She said, absolutely. I wish she would have killed us instead. She followed that up with saying she didn't want to call her and James victims because that would disrespect the victims in the shooting, but that her and James had lost a lot in all of this. All right, that's heavy, you guys. I feel like I just dumped so much sorrow on you talking about the situation that feels like it could have been prevented. So... Let's try to close it up. What happens from here? Jennifer will be sentenced on April 9th. She could face up to 15 years in prison for each of the four guilty verdicts. And as a reminder, Ethan is serving life without parole. I'll let you know how James' trial turns out. And as far as the families are concerned, most agree that this was a vital step towards accountability. Craig Schilling, okay, that's Justin's father. He was one of the students killed that day. Well, he said that this case wasn't about winning or losing. It was about making it apparent that all of this has to stop in society. He said parents can't satisfy their own interests over their children's, especially when it comes to addressing mental health concerns. And you guys, I think he summed it up for all of us when he said, Everything about this was disturbing. All right, let's take a look at a potential murderous firefighter. Or is he a man that might just be the unluckiest lover out there? Because we have two dead fiancés in four years. So who's this guy? Who's Robert Douse? Well, to be honest, he's a hero in St. Louis County, Missouri. He serves the heavily populated 18 square miles of the county as a firefighter in the Maryland Heights Fire Protection District. And he comes from a long line of first responders. 
His father, Robert Douse Sr., served as captain of the fire department, and the Douse family jointly owns Liberty Artworks, which is a local company that makes memorials for the police and fire department all over the nation. Now, these are manly men, and those manly men are deeply entrenched in the law enforcement community. Robert has been known to participate in the 9-11 memorial stair climb, and also, while he was working as the fire captain, he nurtured the relationship between the public and the fire department. Robert had a son from a previous relationship when he met Grace Holland. And the two, well, they seem like a perfect fit. Grace, who was the mother of four daughters from a previous marriage, well, she was loyal to the first responder circle. As a teen, Grace had worked with the Police Explorer Program. And according to her twin sister, Laura, she had a profound respect for law enforcement. Grace supported guns and hoses. Okay, that's a fundraising effort for both the police and fire departments. And then she was also a part of those stair climb events. And like Robert, she worked hard to be a contributing member of the community. She also had a degree in criminal justice. But here's the reality. You can find two people who seem perfectly suited for each other, but that doesn't mean they should be together. According to Laura, okay, remember, that's Grace's sister, the four-year relationship between Grace and Robert had turned violent, so abusive that Grace had begun recording the physical and verbal assaults that Robert was inflicting on her. Laura said Grace was often covered in bruises. Her family said the controlling behavior of Robert had caused Grace to quit her job. Instead, she was working at Robert's family business, Liberty Artworks, but she was never even on the payroll. Instead, Robert would give Grace money under the table, and Grace's family felt that was all about control. They said he would control how much gas was in her car and when she could leave the home. Laura also said he would monitor the visitations with Grace's daughters. And adult friends, well, they were completely out of the question. Laura says Grace's best friend severed their friendship following an uncomfortable dinner with Grace, Robert, and her. Finally, when, according to Laura, Grace was grasping for straws, Grace played one of the abusive recordings for Robert. Laura said it was to help Robert understand his abuse and possibly encourage him to go get help. Laura said the exact opposite happened. The abuse accelerated. So according to Laura, Grace took her concerns to the Maryland Heights Fire Department Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Mark Russell. Laura said Grace told Mark that Robert was blowing up at home. This was dead end number two for Grace. Her attempt to get Robert to help himself didn't work. Her attempt to get Robert's good friend and coworker to help didn't work. So here's the third attempt. Grace turned to professional help by seeking out counseling for both her and Robert. All right, so you might be asking, why was she trying to save this man and this pending marriage? Well, it seems true in a lot of abusive relationships. There were good times. The two were getting ready to sell their home they lived in and move to a home they were renovating. And that home included floating fireplaces, and custom light fixtures that had been picked out by Grace. They had even secured the marriage license for their upcoming wedding. But all of those dreams came crashing down 
on July 22nd of 2020, when at 5.10 a.m., when most people are still sleeping, Robert called 911 and calmly told dispatch that he was a fire captain with the Maryland Heights Fire Department and that his fiance had just shot herself in the head in front of him. First responders found Grace with a bullet hole in the left frontal lobe. Now, this was disturbing to Laura from the very get-go. Grace was right-handed. Laura said there was no way that Grace could shoot herself in the left side of her forehead with a downward trajectory. There's also some confusion about whether Robert even tried life-saving measures, despite being a trained first responder. And before Robert even spoke with law enforcement that morning, he had called the Maryland Heights Fire District Attorney. Some could interpret this as, quote, lawyering up. This would be the advice every lawyer would give you. Call when an emergency happens. So, of course, Grace's family found this concerning, while others thought this is exactly what Robert should have done, that he was making a smart decision. Now, Grace's family is obviously concerned, and they're a little bit broken, and they're baffled at the concept that their loved one, who seems so full of life, would end it all with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. But those emotions were elevated even more when just days after Grace's death, Robert scrubbed any memory of Grace from his social media. Now, grief is individual, and maybe that's the way Robert could deal. But for Grace's family, this was just too many things adding up. Then the family heard rumors from around town that Robert was telling people that the relationship between him and Grace was already ending anyway. Laura said she had heard that Robert was referring to her dead sister as delusional when he discussed her supposed self-inflicted death when he was talking with friends and co-workers. And maybe they had reason to question him so much because according to Laura, he cut ties with the family immediately after the death of Grace and he also never reached out to her four daughters. He didn't participate in the funeral services, whether that be by his own accord or maybe he wasn't invited to, but the bottom line, he wasn't there. And then there's Grace's engagement ring. It went missing. There was a fake one in its place, but the real diamond has still not been accounted for, and that diamond was supposedly worth nearly $20,000. Laura says that they received no help from the Creve Corps Police Department. Robert was initially interviewed while he was working on his written statement for the cops, but that interview... Well, the tape was inadvertently destroyed by the Creve Corps Police Department. And clearly, Laura is aggravated and disgusted with the efforts of law enforcement. She believes Robert was being protected by the blue code of silence. She even wrote a detailed letter to the Creve Corps Police Department, highlighting 20 aspects where she feels law enforcement failed. Okay, I'm just going to give you a few of them here. She says, they failed to correctly identify an entry versus exit wound which also means these wounds did not correlate with the position of the body when the body was found. She says they misinformed the medical examiner's office as to the location and position of Robert at the moment of Grace's death. He was, by his own admission, standing next to her. She says they failed to call crimes against persons. 
She said they failed to remove friends of Captain Douse or Robert from the police investigation. She said they closed the crime scene before reaching out to the family. She said they failed to investigate her stolen property and lied about not investigating it. So right there, she's referring to the ring. She said they allowed Robert to be present when picking up her property, despite saying otherwise to the family. She said they failed to collect and bag evidence properly. She's referring to things like they didn't bag her hands, they didn't test Robert's hands for residue, and they didn't collect his clothing. She said they failed to address the large pool of blood on the right side of Grace's head. She said they didn't even identify the cause of that injury. Then she said they failed to address the bruises on her body during the autopsy photographs. And she said they managed to, quote, lose multiple video recordings. She also contends that personal police cell phones were used, but that information was not recorded. She says one officer refused to supply his phone records as part of a Sunshine Law request. She said they failed to collect Robert's phone, stating he needed the phone for work. She said she was told by a Creve Corps police detective that if she wanted answers, she needed to hire a lawyer. She said they extended professional courtesy to Robert well beyond what any other citizen would be given. She also said they failed to question Robert at the time of the investigation, and they've yet to question him 14 months later. She said they never even contacted Grace's therapist. And then she went on to say Creve Corps detectives took almost two hours to arrive to the crime scene that morning. After receiving little help from law enforcement, Grace's family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Robert in September of 2023. The lawsuit accused Robert of psychological and physical abuse and alleged that he'd either shot her himself or encouraged her to take her own life. Now, in the weeks before her death, the family alleges Robert had offered Grace $600 to abort their baby that she was carrying. And it also alleges that during one domestic dispute, Robert responded to the prospect of Grace calling 911 with the following phrase. My brothers in blue are not going to do anything to me. I've already taken care of that. You're the crazy girlfriend, remember? Now, that lawsuit I'm talking about, it's yet to be settled. But Sergeant Tracy Panis told the Daily Beast in a statement that a report on Grace's death was sent to the prosecuting attorney's office in early December of 2023. She cited that it will be up to the prosecutor's office to decide if Grace's suspicious death warrants any criminal charges. Now, I'm sure for Grace's family and for her twin sister, Laura, the movement of the case going to the prosecutor's office was probably some sort of relief, or at least they view it as movement after three and a half years of absolutely nothing. But now, many, many people are questioning if the slow movement in the investigation into Grace's death could have potentially caused the death of another fiancé of Robert Douse. Because 39-year-old podiatrist Sarah Sweeney was found dead in Robert's home in January. All right, that's two dead fiancés, but the circumstances are different this time. Sarah's body showed no apparent signs of trauma, but the incident is being treated as suspicious, and law enforcement and family are anxiously awaiting autopsy results. 
Those results are expected to be completed in about one to three weeks. All right, so who's Sarah Sweeney? Well, Sarah was the only daughter of Stephen and Teresa Sweeney. She was raised in West Virginia, and when she was six years old, she was diagnosed with Peirce disease. So in my reading, I learned that Peirce disease affects the rounded head of the femur, where the femur meets up with the hip. Now, the blood supply lessens because of this, and it causes great pain to the child, and therapy is required to heal the area. Now, most kids can go back to functioning like an average child, but the pain and therapy actually shaped Sarah. She took life more seriously. She even professed her faith to Christ at the age of 11 when she was baptized. Sarah battled the on and off pain of Perth's most of her life. But according to her mother, she accepted that struggle and she moved forward with her education and career. After completing her surgical residency in Miami, Sarah moved to Texas and she practiced there for several years before moving to St. Louis. She had recently opened her own podiatry practice in Creve Corps, and prior to the new practice, she had struck up a relationship with Robert, and that relationship was full of complications from the very beginning. Sarah's mother, Teresa, was leery of Robert. She knew his past, and she disagreed with Sarah dating Robert. She had even forwarded multiple articles about the potential murder that had been ruled a suicide to Sarah. Okay, all of that created tension that became so intense that Sarah wasn't in contact with her mother anymore. This new relationship had severed her relationship with her mother. And I'm saying, is that a red flag? You decide. But Sarah was also expressing concern to her friends. So it wasn't just her mom. Sarah is now telling her friends she's concerned. According to the New York Post, Sarah had texted her friend Danielle and told her that living with Robert was scary because the rumors that he was a murderer were always kind of just rattling around in that quiet part of her brain. Now I'm reading between the lines here, but it seems Sarah had moved in with Robert partially for monetary reasons, not just solely out of love. She was in the middle of a lawsuit with her former employer. She had just started her own practice, and it seems like the combined living situation just kind of made sense from a money stance. Again, this is me examining interviews and the messages between her and Danielle and coming to that conclusion. So let's talk about that lawsuit that Sarah had filed against her former employer. She was suing because she felt her previous employer had harassed and discriminated against her. She claimed that the company had taken away her medical insurance without cause and that she had also not been fully compensated for her time worked. Well, in response, her former employer filed a countersuit saying that Sarah's mental and physical health was diminished and that her relationship with Robert was key to that decreased mental health. It had gone so far, her former employer had even subpoenaed text messages between Robert and Sarah in order to display the continued abuse that Sarah was suffering over the two years that she dated Robert. All right, now that Sarah has passed, her former employer isn't answering any media requests. And that's not surprising. And remember Grace's twin sister, Laura? Well, she told the son 
that she feels partially responsible for the abuse that Sarah allegedly suffered. She says she failed to protect Grace, and now she failed to protect Sarah. Okay, I feel like I need to clarify something before we end this story. I told you the side that is available to me. Robert's been silent about the deaths. He's been silent about the pending lawsuit from Grace's family. I didn't really give you his side of the story, but that's because he's not telling it. I will update you when the autopsy results return on Sarah. And also, if the reopened investigation about Grace yields any different findings. Well, that's your Thursday episode of Rise and Crime. Thanks, you guys, for being here with me on this journey. I especially love just the positive feedback, your case suggestions. I just love interacting with you. So thank you so much. And if you love what you're hearing, give Rise and Crime a like or a follow. You could also tell a friend. And even better, go ahead and subscribe while you're at it. Join me again on Monday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.